Welcome to the August edition of Ask Sid. These are questions that came from Facebook and Twitter, and I encourage you, every time you see these questions, these are, these are hot areas. As a matter of fact, this one that we're discussing, false grace. You heard me right. I didn't say grace is false. I said there is a false version of grace. Uh, this could very well be uh, the end-time heresy that will lead many, most, to abandon their faith. Uh, it's, it's serious business, and that's why I'm going to do this a little different. I asked my friend, Dr. Michael Brown, who's a Semitic language scholar. I've known Mike for, uh, he just reminded me, 29 years. Uh, Mike, when I hear the word false grace, it's like an oxymoron. That doesn't make sense. What, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is there's something wonderful, beautiful, pure, true grace, the grace that forgives us, the grace tra that transforms us, the grace that makes us like Jesus. And today there's an epidemic of false grace teaching, the exaggerated grace, adding things to the biblical message, taking it beyond what Scripture says, taking things away from the biblical message. And as much as there's a beautiful, powerful truth, when it's mixed with serious error, it can be absolutely deadly. And we're seeing the negative, destructive effects of it everywhere. But, but yet I hear of renowned evangelists uh, that hear messages on grace mixed with error and they end up doing things like divorcing their wife and marrying their secretary and I'm not exaggerating uh, are you hearing reports of being shipwrecked people being shipwrecked constantly. on this message constantly and it's not just a matter of are the preachers saying that grace gives you justification for sin I have not heard any of these teachers that I say have an exaggerated message of grace, I've not heard any of them say that grace gives you a license to sin. Many will say grace empowers you not to sin, but because they mix it with these other errors, because they say we're already forgiven for all of our sins and the Holy Spirit doesn't convict us of our sins and God doesn't see our sins, and no matter what you do, you can't affect your relationship with God or your eternal standing with God, hey, in moments of temptation and deception, it opens the door. And we were doing outreach at a gay pride event recently with some of our students from Fire School of Ministry. And one young lady who said she was a Christian said, homosexuality is sin, but if you're Christian, you're already forgiven, so it doesn't really matter and you can't help your heart. We hear this all the time. And the moment you quote verses about holiness, conduct, lifestyle, they'll say, no, 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 that's sin management. That's behavior modification. You're putting me back under the law. And they throw out the message of holiness. Well, I have to tell you, I cannot relate to a backslider. I, I have to tell you, my precious relationship with God, it's so special that I live in instant repentance, and I can't understand why anyone would want to have interference because the Bible says your sins have separated you from your God. And if you say, well, when I repented, when I was born again, that took care of it all. I, I have news for you. A little leaven will ruin the whole loaf. Let's go to these questions. Mike Sarah V says, if we have grace, what does it mean when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments? Why did Jesus ask us to keep his commandments? Ah, the fact is 
that God's grace encourages us, empowers us to keep the commandments. This is something throughout the New Testament. This is not Old Testament legalism. This is not bondage. This is an expression of love. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. It's often been said that the only proof of the new birth is the new life. So the expression of our love for God, which is the fruit of God's grace in us, will cause us to keep his commandments, will give us a desire to keep his commandments. In fact, it's one of the fruits of the New Testament, the new covenant that's been made, that God puts his laws in our hearts, and it becomes our nature now to serve him and obey him. So grace gives us the desire and the power to keep the commandments of God. Okay, this is a question that I feel the Holy Spirit just prompted me to ask. It's not on our list. Mike, what is your biblical definition of holiness? My biblical definition of holiness is becoming like Jesus in thought, word, and deed. Holiness is being separated from sin and separated to God. So it is being conformed to his nature. We put aside the pollution of the world and we become like Jesus. Holiness is beautiful. Who does not want to be like Jesus in thought, word, and deed? That's holiness. One Salvation Army preacher decades ago said, holiness is pure love. When you think of it in those terms, you realize it's not just a matter of don't do this, do this. It's a matter of becoming like the Lord in every area of our lives. I like that. Okay, Linda B., how can we say that the law was abolished when Jeremiah 31 says that God will put his law on our mind and heart? A lot of grace teachers have an extreme hostility to the law. What, what God is against is a legal system that puts people in bondage or legal religion, which is externally imposed religion. It's rules without relationship. It's standards without a savior. It, it's a, an outward form that tries to change me from the outside in. God's grace changes us from the inside out. But you're absolutely right. Jesus says in Matthew 5:17, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. And, for example, the requirements of sexual purity and divorce and things like this, Jesus takes to a higher and deeper level. And then, yes, God writes these things in our hearts. So the issue was the Sinai covenant. The issue was God wrote things on tablets of stone and then said to human beings, you have to do this, and we were not able. Now, through the new covenant, God writes his laws on our hearts. I read teaching from, from one young man, a hyper-grace pastor, and he said if God wrote any of the Ten Commandments on our hearts, it would kill us. No, what kills us is externally imposed religion. When God writes his laws on our heart, it becomes our nature to serve him and obey him. Okay, Stephen and Nancy B. ask, can people willfully sin and still go to heaven? Ah, big question, big it, question. It all depends on what's meant by this. We know that Hebrews 10, 26 and following say if we willfully sin after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful looking forward to divine judgment. It's written to Jewish people who thought, well, maybe I can go back to the temple system. Maybe I can go back to sacrifices and I can go on sinning and I have those other sacrifices. And, and he's saying, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, no, 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 there is no other sacrifice. And if you reject Jesus and go on in willful sin, you are damned. 
So if someone says, I will continue in sin, I will continue in adultery, I will continue in drunkenness, I will, I will continue in extortion, I will continue raping and killing. No, of, of course that person cannot be a follower of Jesus. 1 John 3 says that, that no murderer has eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul says the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God and then gives a list of things. So willful sin is willfully saying no to God. It is willfully saying no to the lordship of Jesus. It is refusing him. 2 Timothy 2.19 tells us God knows those who are his. That's his side. Our side is let everyone who, who calls on the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, if someone sins and blows it, if they do something evil and wrong and they turn to God in repentance, they're forgiven. He'll wash them clean. There may be earthly consequences to what they've done, but they will be washed clean. The blood of Jesus never loses his power. But if I walk in willful sin, turn my back on God, and refuse his cleansing blood to transform me, I will not inherit eternal life. Okay, Tom C. asked, Why does the Bible say faith without works is dead, and you will know them by their fruit if our behavior is not important according to grace? Again, it's the false grace message that says our behavior is not important. Our behavior is not important in terms of when I got saved, I did not have to behave better to be forgiven. I behaved better because God forgave me. And now, even on a, on a bad day, let's say I didn't pray the way I should have prayed, I'm still a child of God. I'm still loved by God. I'm not in one moment, out the next moment based on my behavior. Oh, I wasn't kind enough to that lost sinner. I'm, I'm lost. No, I was kind. I'm saved. So some people can get into this in a hyper mode and get so caught up with how they do every little thing that they live in perpetual bondage. The fact of the matter is, though, our behavior matters a lot. The fact of the matter is we are told to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance and prove our repentance by our deeds. The fact is we are predestined to holiness and good works. The fact is almost every letter in the New Testament addresses our conduct. First Peter 1, Peter quotes in Leviticus 19, without apology, be holy because the Lord your God is holy. And Peter says, since our God is holy, we should be holy in all of our conduct. Faith without works is dead. You know, I'm reminded of the scripture uh, in Revelations. I'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, how does that fit with once saved, do anything you want, always saved? Oh, it doesn't fit. So what do you do? Well, you throw out the words of Jesus. I, I confronted one of these false grace teachers, and I said to him, what do you do with the words of Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3? Because five out of the seven congregations, he brings a severe rebuke to. Let's, let's not even think about once saved, always saved. If my behavior doesn't matter, if my conduct doesn't matter, if it's all the same to God, I've read statements that nothing you do, no matter how you live, nothing can break your fellowship with God because he's in you. Therefore, nothing can break your fellowship with him. I said, what about these words of Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3? He says over and over, I see your works. I know your works. I'm looking at you and you need to repent. His response was this. If you base your theology on the book of Revelation, you end up in a mess. In other words, throw it out. Just throw it out. So sadly, when this theology is challenged by the words of Jesus, that's the solution. Throw out the words of Jesus. Fable T asks, 
Does one have to live a righteous life to receive grace from God? Yes and no. Let me explain. That's such a Jewish answer, Mike. <laughs> well, well there's a, it's a nuanced thing. Okay. For, for example, we read in James, the fourth chapter, or First Peter, the fifth chapter, that if we humble ourselves, James says it specifically, God gives more grace. So God gives grace often in response to our humbling ourselves, our turning to the Lord, our crying out for mercy and help. In that sense, there are things we can do to bring God's grace. But really, the bottom line is that God's grace comes to us when we are wicked, filthy, unworthy sinners, when there's nothing we could do in a million lifetimes to ever repay our debt to God or cleanse ourselves from our sin. And it is God's grace that makes us righteous. It is God's grace that pronounces us righteous. And the day I stand before God, while I I hope to be able to give account and say, Lord, I've, I've finished the race that you've called me to run, at the same time, I will stand before him based on grace, not based on how good I am. Melissa T. asks, what does it look like to abuse God's grace? This is actually something that Scripture talks about. It talks about insulting the spirit of grace. In Hebrews, Jude, Judah talks about people, godless men, false teachers who take the grace of God and turn it into a license for sin. To abuse God's grace is to say, because Jesus already paid for my sins and I'm already forgiven, not just for past and present sins, but future sins as well, I can live however I want to live. God's grace is abused when rather than it being an incentive to holiness, it becomes an excuse for sin and immorality. Rather than that love touching my heart so that I just want to live for God and please him and serve him, that's what his grace does in my heart. Instead, to abuse it is to say, hey, if I'm forgiven, if I already have a free ticket, to put it in physical terms, if no matter how I eat, what I do, my physical health is going to remain the same, it really doesn't matter. That is a horrific abuse of God's grace. Some even go so far as to say, if it's grace, then it's not by works. And therefore, if Jesus paid for it all on the cross, everybody ultimately gets in. And there are some false grace teachers who are now teaching forms of universalism that everybody eventually gets in through what Jesus did. They, they even go further. Some of them say even the devil's going to get in. I mean, I, I, I mean, how crazy can you get? Or they go so far as to say there's no hell. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I interacted with one fellow. He posted some completely outrageous things on his Facebook page. And he said, are, are demons outside of the grace of God? Is the spirit of death outside of the grace of God? And, and if Jesus didn't walk around rebuking the Pharisees, Jerusalem wouldn't have been destroyed. Jesus could have walked in more grace. We challenged him on these statements. He said, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I hold them. He wouldn't even renounce them. That's deception. Now, have you confronted have you written to these people to help them that are, are the leaders of the, of the false grace uh, movement i mean it seems to me before you write and you talk on it you have to approach them there, there's some that because of their standing or stature or ministry don't really interact a lot and and it's difficult to approach them and get to them uh, we offered to have a public debate or dialogue with one of the biggest leaders and got no response. But quite a few others, well-known, best-selling authors on the subject, 
often quoted in America and other countries. I wrote to them. I interacted with them. I spoke with one on the phone. We went back and forth, and every single one said, this is our position. I, I said, look, I, I have a book that, that will be coming out about this. Can we, in, uh, would you like to see what I've written? Because I have serious concerns. I, I'm concerned for their well-being. No, this is what we hold. I, I wrote to one young man. I was concerned because he's in his 30s, and, and he's suddenly become a well-known, respected teacher. So as an older brother in the Lord, I was concerned for a younger brother. I took the most extreme statement in his book. It's a hair-raising statement. I sent it to him. I said, I have serious concerns with this. Do you still hold to it? He said, 100%. You've got to tell me the statement. What was his? The statement was that, quote, the Bible Society, I don't know which Bible Society, it's a bogus statement to start there, made a terrible mistake by putting the Old Testament together with the New Testament and thereby gave people a terribly confusing view of who God is. I, I don't get it. How does someone have the Bible come up with a conclusion like that? Don't they realize the only Bible the first church had was the Old Testament? I pray that we walk in the miracles that our brothers and sisters in the first church went, walked in without even having the New Testament. Okay, Doris P. writes, can you ask God to cover the situations in your life with his grace? If you mean, Lord, I, I messed up in this relationship, I was in sin in this situation, I've turned, wash me, cleanse me, of course he restores, of course he heals, of course he delivers. First John 1 John 1.7 says this, If we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's an ongoing, perpetual thing. It's like walking through a smoke-filled room. You come out smelling like smoke, even if you haven't smoked. Well, if you have smoked, there can still be that cleansing, that washing. However, if you mean that grace is God's way of just sweeping things under the rug, no, of course not. Proverbs 28 gives this principle that he who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. That has never changed. So God's grace does not sweep things under the rug. However, when we come to him and ask for forgiveness, washing, cleansing, he does it. In fact, he washes us and cleanses us when we don't even know it as we're seeking to please him and do his will. We fall short in ways we don't even know about, but if our heart is set on pleasing the Lord, he's always there to wash, to cleanse, to encourage. There are consequences to actions, though. And if someone robbed a bank and then told God they were sorry, God will forgive them, but they will go to jail for what they did. So there are still consequences. Things don't just get swept under the rug, but with repentance and confession, everything, everything can be cleansed by grace. Uh, Mike, Sarah L. writes, what is the meaning of grace? And is there more than one meaning to grace in Hebrew? The, the Hebrew word that's normally translated grace simply means kindness, favor, the word that we draw most of the meanings from is the New Testament word, the Greek word charis. And charis can mean unmerited favor, as in Acts, the 15th chapter, when Peter says, Jew and Gentile, we are saved by the grace of God. Unmerited favor. Ephesians 2, by grace you are saved. 
It means unmerited favor, but it means more than that. The word charis is the word from which we get charismata or charismatic. It also refers to God's empowerment. So in Acts, the sixth chapter, it says of Stephen that he was filled with God's grace, not meaning unmerited favor, but meaning divine power. Paul says in Romans 12, grace is given to each of us with specific calling. It means divine empowerment and help. So God's grace is his ongoing kindness and help towards us when we're lost. It's completely unmerited. It's completely based on what Jesus did. As believers, it is God now working with us, helping us, equipping us, empowering us to the point that Titus 2.11 says that it is God's grace that has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and to live disciplined, holy lives. So it's God's grace that actually empowers us to holiness. So yes, unmerited favor. Yes, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, and even more, his ongoing empowerment and help in our lives. In fact, out of the 155 times that the word charis occurs in the Greek New Testament, most of the time it does not mean unmerited favor. Hmm. Patricia M. asks, what does it mean that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus? This is written in John chapter 1, verse 17. The word but does not occur. It's better to have a semicolon. The law was given by Moses, semicolon. Grace and truth came by Jesus the Messiah. Without question, Jesus brought a greater revelation of grace than had ever been before. Was there no grace in the law? There was grace throughout the law. Was there no revelation of the God of grace under the law? There was a tremendous revelation. But second... Corinthians, the third chapter, says that that ministry, as glorious as it was, still brought condemnation. So now we get the full picture. Jesus dying for every wrong thing we did. Jesus bringing good news to the captive. The grace of God is manifest in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in a way bigger and better than anything before. I read the words of evangelist Reinhard Bonnke recently to the effect that we got a picture of God in the Old Testament in outline form. In the New Testament, we get it in living color. So it expands on, it deepens, it, it, it opens our eyes more fully to the extraordinary forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And it was not fully manifest until he came and until he went to the cross. Mike A. writes, Because of grace, should we say that the Ten Commandments are out of date and I'm going to P.S. this, most of the false grace teachers have such a disdain for the entire Old Testament. And they, they say with, with this disdain, I'm no longer under the law, as if to say the Ten Commandments are out, the entire Old Testament is out. How would you respond? The question of the Ten Commandments is an interesting one because of the question of Sabbath. And that will bring great debate among God's people. Is it Sunday? Is it Saturday? Is it Saturday for all? Is it Saturday just for Jewish believers? Do we just have rest in Jesus? So let's just put aside for a moment how the 10th commandment, or excuse me, how the Sabbath commandment is fulfilled. Let's just put that aside. And ask the larger question about the 10 commandments. Does grace make them outdated? No, of course not. What's written in Ephesians 6? Paul says to the children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father 
and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. So Paul's actually quoting the Ten Commandments and quoting them to believers under grace and saying that this is a principle by which we live and that it's the first commandment that God gave that had an accompanying promise. If you do this, it will go well with you. There's nothing wrong with commandments. Paul gives commandments in the New Testament. This is how you should live. To the Thessalonians, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the word there for instructions really means commandments. These are firm things. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's nothing wrong with commandments. The problem is if they are written on stone rather than written on our heart. But here's what we have to realize. A lot of people say, well, I'm under grace. I don't need all these laws and commandments. And then why does Paul teach us how to live? Why does Paul say, do this, don't do this, live like this, don't live like this? Why does Peter do it? In fact, Peter has a whole book filled with exhortations, how to live, how to be holy, how to walk in submission, how to abstain from sinful fleshly desires, how to resist the devil, the warfare we're in. And he comes to the end of his book, 1 Peter 5, and says, this is the true grace of God. So grace is not in opposition to laws and commandments. Grace empowers us to live out the laws and commandments because they're now written on our hearts. Now, we understand when the New Covenant speaks of no longer under the law, it's talking about no longer under the law for righteousness. We don't need the animal sacrifices. But some have taken it to the point of saying, let's cut the Old Testament out of our Bible. We hate the Old Testament. And I know you've addressed this, but what's the strongest apologetic you can give to that? The strongest apologetic is, is found in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says explicitly that all Scripture is given by inspiration of, of God and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. And what he was talking about was the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the Bible. He said it's all given by inspiration, and it's useful for these things. Also, 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about what happened to Israel, the sin they committed and how God judged them. He said these things are written down as examples for us. He says that in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And then Romans 15, 4, he says everything that was written beforehand was written for us that we through patience and hope in the Scriptures uh, might, might endure. Uh, let's also remember that when Paul teaches grace in Romans, the 10th chapter, he does it quoting from Deuteronomy. And when Jesus did warfare with Satan in the wilderness, he did it by quoting from Deuteronomy. So we are not under the condemnation on the, of the law. We are not under the law as a system of righteousness. We are not under the law to lead us to the Messiah as a schoolmaster to, to lead us to the Messiah. But now in Jesus, the whole Bible takes on a new relevance. It's often been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There are foundations that are built on. And look, a psalm like Psalm 23, you only have that there. A psalm like Psalm 103, which extols God's grace and mercy, you only have that there. There are many revelations of God's grace that we get through the Old Testament scriptures and then get the fullness of it through Jesus. But, but you know what? Not, not only... Is it true what Dr. Brown is saying? But you will not have a clue about the return of the Messiah because the first coming of the Messiah was in the biblical feast. If you tossed out the biblical feast, for sure you would have missed the first coming. And the return of the Messiah is all 
in the biblical feast. You throw that out. You throw out end-time Bible prophecy that hasn't even happened yet. Why, you know, my mother didn't raise a dummy. Why would I throw out a book from God himself that tells me all about what's going to happen in the future? And, here, and here's a simple question. When you build the first floor of the house and now you build the second floor, do you cut out the first floor? Do you eliminate it? You better not. Right. Well, that's what happens when people eliminate the Old Testament. It brings a wave of deception with it. I believe that was the key word, deception. Okay, Oscar L. asks, if grace is sufficient, then does this mean that God will not heal us all the time because he has some higher purpose for us? Well, God's grace is sufficient. The, the comment comes from 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, where Paul is pleading because of a thorn in his flesh, pleading with God to remove it. Now, you might be interested to know that biblical scholars and church historians differ on what that thorn was. Some say it was a physical illness. Some say it was the false teachers. Some say it was extreme demonic attack. Some say it was extreme persecution he experienced wherever he went. I personally understand the thorn to be demonic opposition and persecution on a supernatural level wherever Paul went. And it was something that ultimately kept him humble. I mean, after he preached his message, instead of everybody clapping, he's getting stoned to death or he's getting dragged into a prison somewhere. It was extreme. He mentions it as part of his weakness. And when he asked God to take it away, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. H however, we don't draw a theology of healing based on that. You're not Paul. I'm not Paul. That's the first thing. And we do not have any explicit example of God giving a sickness to someone, one of his people, God blessing that person with a sickness or disease. So we, we need to be careful before we draw conclusions from 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. This much we know, we have many wonderful promises for divine healing, many wonderful promises that this is an expression of his goodness. And when Jesus died for our sins on the cross, he opened the door for the, the, the healing of our bodies as well. So I would encourage you to continue to pray and believe God for healing and understand that his grace is sufficient to carry you through, even in the midst of sickness, even in the midst of struggle. If someone's in a wheelchair and they're not healed, there is sufficient grace for them to live an overcoming, joy-filled life, but that shouldn't stop them from believing God for healing. By the way, speaking about the promises in the Bible, some of the best promises about healing are in the Old Testament. In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who's forgiven all of my sins, Old Testament, and healed all of my diseases, Old Testament. Cleo B. asks, does grace ever run out for an individual who is deep in sin, causing them to be rejected? Grace never runs out but we can run from grace. We can get to a point where we refuse God's grace. In, in other words, the resource of grace is always there. The blood of Jesus never loses its power. The potential for forgiveness and mercy is there. And unless someone crossed that line of blasphemy in the spirit and completely turned their back on God and attributed the works of the spirit to Satan, and they did it knowingly. But no matter how far someone's fallen, God can forgive. And the blood of Jesus will prevail. However, it is possible 
for someone to reject God's grace, reject mercy. How do they do it? By persisting in unrepentant sin or by denying the Lord. Paul writes to Timothy and says... Why don't the grace teachers just say what you just said? That would make me so happy, and I think it would make God so happy. The problem is they think if they do that, they deny God's grace. In other words, they are so excited about this amazing revelation of grace. It's like a helium balloon that took off, and, and they didn't tether it to the rest of what the Word of God said. So that balloon can fly beautifully, but it flies with biblical foundations. Okay, Patricia L. asks, Many religions have different definitions of grace. What does the Messianic gospel teach about grace, and what does it really mean according to Yeshua? Really, there's a revelation of grace that comes through the New Testament that's different than that in any other religion. Philip Yancey tells the story of a convening of scholars, religious conference at Oxford University, and they're talking about different religions and what sets Christianity apart. And they couldn't agree because so many things Christianity has in common with Judaism or with Islam or with this or with that. And they asked C.S. Lewis, and he said, oh, that's easy, grace. This idea that all the sins I committed were paid for by the Son of God, this idea that he took the punishment I deserve and I receive his righteousness, this idea that God himself came into our world to pay for what we did is completely outrageous and beyond anything that any other religion teaches. And it's that that gives us new birth and brings us into the family of God. Okay, this is an interesting question here. Ryan C. asks, has God already forgiven our future sins? God has not already forgiven our future sins. This is one of the fundamental errors of the hyper-grace or false grace movement. Jesus paid for all of our sins. The New Testament makes clear that as believers, we still need to receive forgiveness. For example, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus instructed us to pray in Matthew, the sixth chapter. And this was for the disciples. The Sermon on the Mount was for the disciples. He teaches us to pray for God to forgive us as we forgive others. James, the fifth chapter, person that's sick, if they've committed sins also, when they're prayed for, they will be forgiven. That means they were not already forgiven. So, of course, we still receive forgiveness. But here's what we need to understand. It is not the forgiveness of salvation. In other words, when we got born again, our sins were forgiven, and God put us in the category of the righteous. He took us out of the category of the damned, the unrighteous, the unholy, and he put us in the category of the saved, the righteous, and called us holy. And now says, my holy ones, my saints, now live a holy life. If we sin as believers, the the forgiveness we receive is forgiveness within the family. It's not the forgiveness of justification. It is relational forgiveness. And yes, that is ongoing. Just like if I sinned against my wife, if I was unkind to her or angry towards her, I would say, honey, please forgive me. That was ugly what I did. There's no justification for it because we have a relationship, because I have a relationship with God. If I blow it in some way, Father, forgive me, wash me. That's not bondage. It's wonderful. It's pure. It's liberating. And it helps me keep a clean conscience. Matthew J. asks, does the Holy Spirit still convict us of our sins? I've heard the Spirit only convicts the world of sin and that he convinces believers 
that we are righteous. This is another serious error in the false grace message. Yes, John 16 does tell us that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. But the Greek word that's used there, the word elenko, occurs many different times in the New Testament. And for example, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That word for rebuke is that same Greek word, elenko. And then it says in, in Revelation 3.21, this is what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So the Spirit, because he loves us, comes to correct us. It's just like if you're driving in a car with someone and they start to get drowned. Hey, 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 you wake them up because you don't want to get in an accident. You don't want them to get in an accident. So it's because of the love of God that the Holy Spirit convicts us. But here's what we need to understand. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't say, away from me, you're unclean, guilty. He says, you've sinned, come close to me, come near to me. He's always desiring to forgive and to restore. But absolutely, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, and it is a life-giving thing that he does. Okay, Robin G. asks, if I'm under grace... Doesn't that mean that God no longer sees my sins? A lot of people think that. This is also a terrible misconception. First, if God no longer sees our sins, why does Jesus talk to us about our sins? Talks to the believers in, in the New Testament churches there in Revelation 2 and 3. Why does he address our sins if God no longer sees them? If God no longer sees our sins, why does Paul rebuke believers for this? Why does he talk to the Corinthians and say, look, some of you are sick and some have even died because of partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily? If God no longer sees our sins, why do the other writers in the New Testament address them? Of course he sees our sins, but here's the message of grace. He still loves us. He's still committed to us. He still wants to make something beautiful out of our lives. That's grace. That's God saying, I see your sins and I should cast you away, but instead I'm convicting you and drawing you near. I see your sins and I should condemn you, but because of what Jesus did, if you'll turn to me, I'll forgive you. Of course he sees our sins. There's not a syllable in the New Testament that says otherwise. You say, ah, but he says, your sins and all the deeds, I'll remember no more. Yes, he forgives and forgets, but it doesn't say he doesn't see what we do. And remember, Jesus says to believers in Revelation 2 and 3, I know your works. Okay, Bob A. asks a question. It's almost hard for me to believe this question. Why do some grace teachers say that the words of Jesus no longer apply to us today? They also seem to denigrate the God of the Old Testament, almost as if he's some lesser kind of deity. Wow. I, I saw an ad in the back of one grace teacher's books, and it said you need to distinguish between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And this teaching series will help you to, rather than view God as this cruel God of the Old Testament, you'll view him as the loving God of the New Testament. This is nothing other than Gnosticism, this idea that the God of the Old Testament is somehow a lesser deity. Let, let's, let's set the record straight. The God of the Old Testament is the Father of Jesus. And when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that's who he is talking about. Tragically, I've seen this very commonly, that some of these exaggerated grace teachers, false grace teachers, hyper grace teachers, however we want to refer to it, 
they will actually say everything Jesus said before the cross was just written for the Jews of that time. I've heard that. And of course you have to say, why then did they take all the time to write these things out decades later and put them in the Gospels? And why did Jesus take all the time just to teach this just for those people then? But, but let's go further. Let's think about this. The Great Commission, Jesus says, we make disciples by teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. Jesus says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything I taught you. The, John 15 tells us that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, speaking about Jesus, we'll ask what we will and be given. Of course the words of Jesus are precious. And I cannot imagine someone loving Jesus and not feasting on all of his words. Someone loving Jesus and not wanting to take in the riches of what he said. Yes, we need to interpret things rightly. When he's rebuking religious hypocrites, that's different language than he would use, say, than ministering to his own disciples. So we, we need to interpret things just like all of Scripture and apply it rightly. But I find this to be perhaps the greatest tragedy of all. Because Jesus tells us, take up the cross and follow me. Because he puts a high cost on being a disciple... And because that contradicts much of this modern false grace message, what these teachers do, rather than modifying their theology, they throw out the words of Jesus. And remember what Jesus says, if we're ashamed of him and his words, he'll be ashamed of us. It's really a serious matter. A, a false gracer, a teacher on Facebook recently said, I view God as my genie in the bottle. I don't even think that needs a comment. It's the whole extension of our 21st century. It's all about me culture. God is here to make me bigger and better and to serve me and to fulfill my dreams as opposed to I am here to do the will of God and fulfill his dreams and plans for my life. The hyper grace message fits right into that. Remember, God says, without holiness you will not even see him. I want to see him, not when I get to heaven, only. I want to see him 24-7. I want to walk in his presence 24-7. Without holiness, you will not see God. As a matter of fact, I know, according to the word of God, there will be false miracles that will be hitting planet Earth and God miracles hitting planet Earth like we've never seen before. But always remember, if you're not walking in the fruit of the Spirit, if you're not walking in biblical holiness, if you're involved in known sin, you will enter that false phase that's about ready to hit planet Earth. Count the cost. I hope you've enjoyed this segment of Ask Sid. And when you see in Facebook another question, be sure to respond.